You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a cycle of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Rethinking Economics. This is Lecture 5, entitled Production and Consumption, given at Dornach on July 28, 1922. We are now going to pursue a little further the sequence of events within the economic process that we considered yesterday. The economic process, as we have seen, is set in motion by human labor working upon nature, so that from the mere raw natural product, which has as yet no value in the economic process, we get the product of nature transformed by human labor. At the next stage, labor is, as it were, caught up in capital, which divides and organizes it until it eventually disappears in the capital. For the further advance of the economic process, therefore, capital itself must labor. This labor of capital is not labor in the old sense. Rather, the capital is taken up by a purely spiritual activity. Spirituals in quotes. The economic process now goes forward by the spirit, quote, making good, close quote, the capital, giving it additional value, as I described in the last lecture. We must try to understand more and more the formula that was indicated yesterday. To this end, let me now describe diagrammatically, symbolically as it were, what I explained yesterday. We may say that nature goes under in human labor. And there's a diagram. We have therefore this stream from nature into labor. Nature disappears in labor. Labor continues to evolve. Then the values that evolved stream onward, as it were, until labor vanishes in capital. You can easily continue this process, which I have traced to this point for yourselves. The cycle must necessarily be completed in some way. The capital cannot merely be blocked at this point, for otherwise we should be dealing not with an organic process, but with one that would die and end in capital. The capital must disappear once more into nature. You must first call to your aid another idea, however, if you wish to understand this rightly. Consider for a moment the economic process as we have traced it up to the present. First, the elaboration of nature by human labor, then the organizing of labor by spirit, and with it the rise of capital, for capital is a concomitant of the organizing of labor by the spirit. Then the existence of capital is such. Capital passes over from the spirit which organized the labor. The capital becomes independent. The labor disappears in its turn. And now the spirit works in the capital as inventive spirit in connection with the whole social life. 
The technical aspect of invention need not concern us here. This will come into question only at a later stage. If you now review all that I have described, you will see that I have presented everything from one side only. This was inevitable because, apart from a few occasional hints, I have been speaking only of production. I have, indeed, included, now and then, ideas that had to do with consumption, especially when we were trying to approach the question of price. Apart from that, you will have found practically nothing about consumption in our discussions thus, in our discussions thus far. I have been speaking of production. Yet the economic process does not consist merely of production, it consists also of consumption. A simple reflection will show you that consumption is exactly the opposite pole to production. We have been trying to find, on the one hand, the values that arise in the economic process within the sphere of production. Consumption, on the other hand, consists in a continual elimination of these values. In consumption they are constantly being used up. That is to say, consumption consists in a constant devaluation of the values. It is this that plays the other important part in the economic process, this constant devaluation of values. It is just through this, indeed, that we have a certain right to call the economic process an organic one, an organic process in which spirit then intervenes. It is of the essence of a living organism that something is continually being formed and again unformed. In any organism there must be a continual production and consumption, and this must be so in the economic organism too. There must be a constant producing and a using up of what is produced. At this point we begin to see, in a different light and from a different point of view, the value-creating forces that we have been considering. Before this point, we have shown only how values arise as the process of production takes its course. At this point, every time a value approaches its moment of devaluation, the whole movement that we have been witnessing thus far will change. So far, we have been observing a progressive forward movement. Values thus arise through the application of labor to nature. Values arise through the application of the spirit to labor, and values arise through the application of the spirit to capital. All of this is a forward movement. In fact, we have been observing the value-creating movement in the economic process. As the devaluating factor of, excuse me, as the devaluing factor of consumption enters into the process at every point, there will be something else as well there will be a development of values that arises between production and consumption themselves. When a value enters the process of consumption, however, it no longer moves forward. It does not attain a higher degree of value. It no longer moves, for something now stands over against it. This is consumption with its development of need. Here the value enters into a very different sphere from the one we have so far been studying. We have been considering the value in its progressive forward movement. See diagram on page 55. Now we must imagine it's moving up to a certain point and being stopped there. 
Every time a value is stopped, there arises not a further value-creating movement, but a value-creating tension. This is the second element in the economic process. In the economic process, we have not only value-creating movements, but also value-creating tensions. We can observe such value-creating tensions most conspicuously and simply where a consumer stands face-to-face with a producer or merchant. And in the very next moment, the creation of value comes to an end, passing over into devaluation. Here, there arises a tension, a tension that is maintained in equilibrium by the human need on the other side. Here the value-creating process is stopped. Human need or consumption confronts it, and there arises the tension between production and consumption. This tension is also most decidedly a value-creating factor, albeit one that is comparable to a force that is restrained, held in equilibrium, rather than to a force that is working itself out. There is here a true analogy with the contrast in physics between kinetic and potential energies, between kinetic energies and those energies of position where an equilibrium is brought about. If you do not take into account these energies of tension, these potential energies in the economic process, you will be driven to the strangest misconceptions. Developing the ideas indicated here, one gains an intelligent conception of every economic relationship. Otherwise, one is led into the greatest confusion. If, for example, you limit yourself to considering the movements of economic energies, you will never understand why the diamond in the King of England's crown has such an immense value. Here you are at once obliged to have recourse to the idea of economic tension value. Many economists take into account the rarity of particular products of nature, but we can never understand rarity as a value-creating factor. If we regard the movement in the economic process as the only creator of values, we must also learn to understand how there arises here and there, most of all through consumption, but through other relationships as well. Would I would call the creation of value by tensions, situations, equilibria. You see then that devaluation can also take place in the economic process, which as I said you can therefore regard as an organic process, an organic process in which spirit constantly intervenes. There must be, or rather there is, constant devaluation. As the values proceed on their way from nature, through labor, to capital, they will be accompanied by a continual process of devaluation. What would happen if this corresponding devaluation could not take place? You can see this from the diagram. To make it clear, let us consider the question of credit. To place capital into the service of the spirit, in the sense that I explained yesterday, The man who produces by means of spirit becomes a debtor. It is only through his having credit that he becomes or can become a debtor. At this point in our diagram, credit steps in, what may be properly called personal credit.
a man has credit. The credit can be expressed in numbers. The capital that many others advance to him is, so to speak, his personal credit. As you know, this personal credit has a certain consequence, at least if we consider it within our present economic conditions. Its economic effect is connected with the rate of interest. Assume that the rate of interest is low. If by using spirit to create, to create in the economic process I become a debtor, that is to say if I ask for credit, I shall have to pay only a small sum for it. Having less interest to pay, I can produce my goods more cheaply. I shall thus have a cheapening effect on the economic process. We may say, therefore, that personal credit cheapens production when the rate of interest falls. So long as the capital continues to be turned to good account or made valuable by the spirit in the economic process, it is always so. When the rate of interest goes down, those who require credit have more freedom of movement. They can play their part far more intensively in the economic process. More intensively, that is to say, for their fellow human beings. If they lower the cost of their commodities, they are playing a fruitful part in the process, at least from the point of view of the consumer. <clears throat> Let us now take the other side. Assume that credit is given on land, a real credit, in quotes. When credit is given on land, the situation is essentially different. Assume that the rate of interest is 5%. A person borrowing capital on the security of land must pay 5%. Capitalizing this, you will get the capital corresponding to the particular piece of land. That is to say, you will get the amount which would have to be paid to buy the piece of land outright. Assume now that the rate of interest falls to 4%. More capital can then be credited into the land. At least this is what actually happens. We then see everywhere, as a result of a falling rate of interest, land becoming not cheaper but more expensive. When the standard rate of interest goes down, land does not become cheaper but more expensive. Quote, real credit, close quote, makes things more expensive, while, quote, personal credit, close quote, makes things cheaper. Real credit makes land more expensive, while personal credit makes commodities cheaper. This is very important in the economic process. It means that when capital returns to nature and simply unites with nature, in the form of real credit, parenthesis, in other words, when there is a union of capital with land, that is to say with nature, close parenthesis, then the economic process will tend more and more in the direction of dearness. D-E-A-R-N-E-S-S. Things will become more dear, I'm assuming. That's the reader aside. Back to the reading. The only sensible thing, therefore, will be for the capital at this point, see diagram C, not to preserve itself in nature, but rather to vanish into nature. How then can capital vanish into nature? So long as it is at all possible to unite capital with nature, that is to say, so long as you can make nature, in its original unelaborated condition, more and more expensive through the accumulation of capital, 
so long as this is possible, capital cannot vanish into nature. On the contrary, it penetrates into nature and maintains itself there. In all countries where the law of mortgage makes it possible for capital to unite with nature, therefore, we shall find a congestion of capital in nature, that is, in the land. Instead of the capital being expended at this point, see diagram D, instead of its disappearing at this point, instead of a value-creating tension arising, there is a further value-creating movement which is harmful to the economic process. There is only one way of preventing this. In a healthy economic process we must not and cannot give real credit, credit based on the security of land, even to a person working on the land. Only personal credit should be given, that is to say, credit that will enable the person to turn the capital to good account through the land. If we simply unite the land with the capital, the capital will become congested the moment it arrives again at nature. If, on the other hand, we unite the capital with the capacities of spirit of those who administer the land and further the economic process by working upon it, then, you see, the capital vanishes. As it reaches nature at this point, it will not become congested, it will not be preserved, but will go right on through nature, back again into labor, and will begin the cycle once more. It is one of the worst possible congestions in the economic process when capital is simply united with nature. Tracing the economic process hypothetically from its initial stages, after labor and capital have evolved from the starting point of nature, when the capital is enabled to take hold of nature instead of losing itself in nature, we see that economic congestion occurs. At this point you may, of course, make a serious objection. In the course of this movement, you may say, the capital has come into being. Suppose it now arrives again at nature and there is too much of it. But this is, it would be different if we were able to lead it over into labor, if we were able, let us say, to invent new methods so as to further the processing of raw materials. For in such a case we would be uniting not nature, but labor with the capital. If we arrive at this point with our capital and process the raw materials in a more economical way, or open out new sources or the like, then we are leading the capital directly over into labor. Close parenthesis. Suppose, however, there is too much capital. The numerous owners of capital will become painfully aware of the fact. They will not be able to start anything with their capital. This is indeed the case if you look into the matter historically. In actual fact, too much capital did arise, and the only way out that it could find was to preserve itself in nature. We thus witnessed in the economic process the so-called rise in the value of land. By contrast, consider the matter in our present larger context. Land reformers always describe these things in an inadequate way, so that the thing cannot be understood. Consider it in a larger context and you will notice that if I unite capital with nature, the value of nature will, of course, be enhanced. 
The more something is mortgaged, the more you will eventually have to pay for it. The value is constantly increased. But is this increase in the value of land a reality? No, it is no reality at all. By its nature, land can never receive a greater value. It can at most receive a greater value by being worked upon in a more rational and scientific way. And in that case, it is the labor that increases the value. To imagine the land itself, however, the land as such increased in value is absurd. It is absolute nonsense. If you do improve the quality of the land, you do so only by working upon it. Insofar as it is only nature, the land can have no value at all. All you can do is to give it a fictitious value by uniting capital with it. We may say then, that what is called the value of land in the sense of present-day economics is in real truth nothing other than capital fixed in the land. Capital fixed in the land is not a real value, but an apparent value, a semblance of a value. That is the point. In the economic process it is high time that we learn to understand the difference between real values and apparent values. Notice that if you have an error in your system of thought, you do not observe its full effect to begin with. Many disturbing processes in an organism are in fact connected with error in thought, but the connection is recognizable only by spiritual science. It escapes the rudimentary natural science of today. People are unaware, for instance, how digestive troubles and similar problems in our peripheral organs arise as a result of such errors. In the economic process, the errors and semblances become real and have real consequences. Economically speaking, it makes no essential difference whether, for example, I issue money that has no foundation in reality but represents a mere increase in the amount of paper money, or whether I assign capital value to the land. In both cases, I am creating fictitious values. By inflating the currency, I increase the prices of things numerically. But in the reality of the economic process, I effect absolutely nothing except a redistribution, which may do intense harm to individuals. In the same manner, the above-described capitalizing of land does harm to those who are involved in the economic process. It would make a very interesting study to compare, for example, the mortgage laws existing before World War I in the Central European countries with the English mortgage laws. On the one hand, in the Central European countries, it was possible to ratchet the so-called value of land up and up and up without limit. The law itself made this possible. In England, on the other hand, it is true to say in a certain sense that this was not so. Compare the effect on the economic process in the one case and in the other. This comparison would make an interesting subject for a dissertation. It would make a very good subject to compare statistically the working of the English mortgage laws with that of German laws. The previous examples have illustrated the essential point in our present context. At this point, diagram E, nature simply must not be allowed to tend toward a preservation of capital. 
Capital must be allowed to work on, unhindered, into labor. What is to happen if capital is actually there, more of it than we are able to make use of? The only thing to prevent its being there in excess is to see that it is used up along this path, diagram D, so that in the end only as much of it is left at this point, diagram E, as can enter once more into the work to be done upon the land. Only as much capital is left as is required for this work. The essential and obvious thing is that the capital should be used up, consumed along this path. Indeed, assuming hypothetically that it could be so, it would be a most appalling thing if nothing were consumed along this whole path. We would have to carry all the products around with us. The process becomes organic only through the fact that things are used up. Just as the products of nature, transformed by human labor, are used up, just as the labor which has been organized by capital is used up, so in its further path the capital itself simply must be used up, properly used up. This using up of capital is something that absolutely must be brought about. This proper using up of capital can be brought about only if the whole economic process from beginning to end, that is, right up to its return to nature, is ordered rightly. There must be something there like the self-regulator in the human organism. The human organism, at any rate, when it is functioning normally, manages to prevent indiscriminate deposits of unused food products. If unused food products are deposited here or there, we become ill. Suppose, for instance, that in the process of digestion, substances are deposited in the head. That is to say, an irregular digestive process arises in the head. The substances that are deposited are no longer carried away. That is to say, their consumption is not properly regulated. Then we get migraine conditions. In a similar way, you will see the same principle at work in all parts of the human organism. The cause of illness lies in inadequate absorption and the inadequate removal of what was not digested. It is just the same in the social organism, when what ought to be used up at a certain point is accumulated. It is a matter of sheer necessity for the capital to be used up along here, diagram D, in order that it may not unite with nature and so become non-living a petrified deposit, as it were, in the economic process. For capitalized land is, in fact, an impossible deposit in the economic process. Let me state expressly that there can be no question here of any sort of political agitation. I simply unfold these matters as they take shape out of the natural process itself. We are only considering the scientific aspect. A science that deals with human actions, however, cannot possibly be pursued without indicating the kinds of sicknesses that can arise, just as we cannot study the human body without indicating the various possible manifestations of illness. There must therefore be a proportionate using up consumption of capital, certainly not a total consumption, for it is necessary that a certain amount should pass on so that nature can be further worked upon. This again I can make clear to you by a picture. Consider a farmer in his economic life. 
he must certainly try to sell the yield of his acres, but he must also keep sufficient seed for the next year. Seed must be preserved. This is a very apt comparison, and we may well apply it to the process we are now considering. Capital must be used up, until what remains we may conceive of as a kind of seed to kindle the economic process anew, once more from the starting point of nature. That alone must remain, which may be necessary for a more scientific processing of natural resources, of raw materials, or for an improvement of the land, let us say, by the creation of better manures and the like. In every such case, labor must be applied. It is that amount of capital which can work on as labor that must be withdrawn from the consumption. Before this point in the diagram is reached, E, the surplus capital which would otherwise unite with nature in an inorganic way must be used up. You may say, well, tell us, how is it to be done? How is it to be brought about that only just enough capital arrives at this point for use as a seed for the future? In the science of economics we stand on the ground not of logic, but of reality. We cannot give the kind of answers that are sometimes given, for example, in the theory of ethics. In the theory of ethics, if we admonish a criminal very soundly, then we shall have done all that is required. But the economic process happens, it must go on, and we must speak out of the reality of this. When we spoke of production, showing how it creates economic values, we were indeed speaking of realities. That consumption is a reality, everyone is well aware. Let me that again. That consumption is a reality, everyone is well aware. In economic science, one must always speak of realities. Ideas, by themselves, have no effect in the real world. What will rightly regulate the economic process at this point in the diagram finds expression in what I call the, quote, real associations, close quote, in my book titled Toward Social Renewal. If you make the economic life independent, if you bring together in associations that are suitably composed the human beings who are actually taking part in the economic life, whether as producers, as merchants, or as consumers, then through the economic process itself these human beings will find it possible to restrain the formation of capital if it is too intense and to stimulate it if it is too feeble. This approach, of course, implies a right observation of the economic process. For instance, if at any point a certain kind of commodity becomes too cheap or too expensive, those concerned must be able truly to observe the fact. The mere fact in itself is not the point. When, through experiences that can grow only out of the concerted councils of the associations, they are able to say, as a result of such experiences, quote, five units of money for so and so much salt are too little or too much, the price is too low or too high, close quote, then and then only will they be in a position to take the necessary steps. If the price of a commodity becomes too low, so that those who produce it can no longer receive sufficient remuneration for their excessively cheap services and their excessively cheap products, 
it will be necessary to assign fewer workers to this particular commodity. Workers will therefore have to be diverted to another kind of work. If, on the other hand, a commodity becomes too expensive, workers will have to be led over into this branch of production. In this way, the associations will always be concerned with the proper employment of people in several areas of the economic life. We must be clear on this. A real rise in the price of a given economic article indicates the necessity for an increase in the number of those who are working on this article, while an undue fall of price calls for measures to divert workers from this field of labor to another. In reality, we can speak of prices only in relation to the distribution of people among the several branches of labor in the given social organism. The view that sometimes prevails today is in which people always have the tendency to work with concepts rather than realities is illustrated by some advocates of quote, free money, close quote, German Freigeldeute, Freigeldeute, I'm not pronouncing that right, sorry, Freigeldeute. To them, it appears quite simple. If prices anywhere are too high, so that too much money has to be spent in purchasing a certain article, these advocates wish to ensure that the amount of money becomes less. Then the commodities will be cheaper, and vice versa. If you think about it thoroughly, however, you will find that this signifies nothing for the economic process. In reality, it is as if by some mischievous device you were to cause the column of mercury to rise when the thermometer indicates that the room is too cold. You are only trying to cure the symptoms. By giving the money a different value, you create nothing real. You create something real if you regulate the labor that is to say, the number of people engaged in a certain kind of work. The price depends on the number of workers engaged in a given field of work. To try to regulate these things bureaucratically through the state would be the worst form of tyranny. To regulate through free associations that arise within the social sphere where everyone can see what is going on, either as members or because their representative sits on the association, or they are told what is going on, or they see for themselves and realize what is required, that is what we must aim for. Of course, this proposal also involves quite another social need. We must see to it that workers are not restricted to only one skill throughout their lives, but are able to turn their hand to other things. Know that this flexibility will be necessary, moreover, if only for the reason that Otherwise, too much capital would arrive at this point in the diagram, E. You can use up the surplus capital, which would be excessive at this point, to instruct and educate the workers in one thing or another to be able to transplant them into other callings. You see, therefore, the moment you think in a rational way, the economic process will correct itself. That is the essential thing. It will never correct itself if you think that by employing this or that measure, by inflation or by the issue of any official instructions, things will improve. By such means, the economy will never improve. It will be improved only by enabling the economic process to be clearly and transparently observed at every place, assuming always that those who make the observations are in a position to follow them out to their logical conclusions.
I wanted to reach this point in our study today in order that you might see that there is no question of starting any agitations with the, quote, threefold social impulse, close quote, as it was intended, and to show what follows from a real and true study of the economic process itself. The end of Lecture 5.